Well, good morning, friends. We're so glad to see you. You look so good this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us online as well as our Edgewood campus. Over the last handful of weeks, we have been in a marriage series, and we're going to continue that for the next couple of weeks. Uh, and then uh, we're going to spend a week uh, enjoying the Lord's Supper together, then baptism together, and uh, it's going to be fantastic. So the next handful of weeks, I think, are going to be great. Uh, but as I think about marriage, I, I think about how it's kind of like the Ikea of relationships in some ways. If you are familiar with Ikea, uh, you know it's easy to get into, but it's going to cost you a lot, and then it's going to be very confusing to put together. And that's really what marriage is, right? Uh, it is uh, easy to get into. It will cost you a whole lot, and it's confusing to get to, to work out. Uh, a lot of people say that love is a dream and marriage is the alarm clock. <laughs> and that you're woken up to uh, what marital bliss used to be. And uh, certainly as we think about marriage, we know that it's not without difficulties. We see that even in the scripture. Paul clearly uh, warns the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 7. He just says, hey, listen, marriage is hard. And we know that to be true. Uh, but today, I want to look at a classic passage. Uh, and if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. Really, I would say in the, in the Scriptures, there's a lot of passages that, that talk about love and, and even kind of the implication of marriage. But there's really three New Testament texts uh, that really just explicitly talk about marriage in great length. We talked about that uh, in Ephesians 5 a couple of weeks ago. Uh, just mentioned 1 Corinthians 7. And then I want to look at 1 Peter chapter 3 today. As you're turning there, also want to go ahead and encourage you to mark uh, another passage of Scripture. Now, I'll actually give you two if you want to mark. Uh, but if you want to mark Proverbs 31 in a second, you can do that. And then also, if you want to mark Titus chapter 2, you can do that. We'll be in those three areas today. And you have my word, though I'll mention a few others. Those are the only ones we'll really bounce around to. Uh, it's 1 Peter 3. Proverbs 31 and Titus chapter 2. Now, as we're diving into 1 Peter 3, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a setup. Um, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter has been writing to a group of exiles. Um, he calls those sojourners. And, and really, these exiles have been running for their lives at the hands of Roman persecution. They've hidden themselves in caves and catacombs. And because of their belief in Christ, his death, the resurrection, their lives have come under great disorder and persecution. As a result of that, Peter is calling the believers there to live excellent lives. In 1 Peter 2, really verse 9, he just says, Hey, you are to continue to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness and into the wonderful light of Christ. And his commission for them is to proclaim the excellencies and the goodness of God despite hardship. He goes on a couple of um, lines later in his letter, in verses 11 and 12, he says this in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and as exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct, and he says, among the Gentiles honorable, meaning live honorable, respectful, worthy lives, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter is writing to this group of exiles, and he's just saying, hey, listen, live pure, noble, honorable lives. Do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but do what's right in the eyes of everyone. 
And you might be asking the question, like, why are you even telling me this? And here's why. It's because what Peter is doing, he's building a case for how believers in Christ should live. And he goes, you should live honorable, noble lives among your neighbors and your friends. He goes on, if you continue in 1 Peter 2, he says, and you live honorable lives even among the authorities, the very authorities that might be out to get you, the very authorities that are oppressive towards you. He goes, you are to live honorable lives among them. And then he continues this thought of being excellent and proclaiming the excellencies of Christ among your neighbors and friends and the authorities. He, he moves then this thought to marriage. In 1 Peter 3, Paul is not bringing up a new idea when it comes to marriage. What he is doing, he's building upon an idea he's already set. As you would proclaim the excellencies and the good news of Christ among your neighbors, friends, and authorities, he goes, you also do that in marriage. And friends, that is the point. See, our world struggles to understand that marriage is a reflection of the gospel. They, they fail to understand that it's a, about a life of submission and service. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Last week, we talked that marriage is really 10 qualities that we see in Jesus that we would emulate among our marriages, but also in the local church. All of that, though, seems so distant and foreign to our culture. And I would tell you, I think it seems so distant and foreign even among us as church members and as people who are called to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light. And I would just tell you, our marriages matter. And Peter shows us that. And so if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to read through verses 7. And I'm going to show you five things that I think are really notable in this text. Verse 1 says, Likewise, likewise wives, be subject to your own husbands. As Peter begins this thought, he certainly has wives in view. He says, so that even some of you... Uh, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, hey, you are to proclaim the excellencies of the one you love. In 1 Peter 2, he says, hey, you're to live honorable lives among the, the Gentiles. Hey, even though they speak maliciously of you, your conduct should be set apart, pure. And then here he builds upon that thought. He goes, hey, your conduct ought to be such a, a, a light and you ought to be living in such a way that even your husbands, even if they don't honor the word of the Lord, they might be won over by the conduct of a worthy woman. At the end of the day, what Peter is saying, he goes, ladies, the way you live your lives really does matter, not only to God, but also to your neighbor, to your friends, to your coworkers but also to, in this case, an unbelieving husband. So at the end of the day, to be a wife means that you are to love your husband in a way that is respectful and, it says, pure conduct. Now, when I think about that, I think about Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, which just simply says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness to his bones. The question is, is, ladies, do you want to be a crown to your husband or do you want to be rottenness to his bones? Well, here, Peter is just saying, hey, look, the way that you live your life matters. And I think it's point number one for me is that simply your marriage is a ministry opportunity. You have to view it like that. It's a marriage, your marriage is a ministry opportunity to an unbelieving spouse your marriage is a ministry opportunity to unbelieving friends. Your marriage is a, mar uh, is a ministry to friends that come over with your children. 
It is always on display. It is always to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ. And I think oftentimes we just miss that. I think it's easy to do that we think, oh, we're to live gospel-centered lives as individuals, but we don't necessarily see that reflected in our marriage. And I would just tell you, like, marriage is probably and should be our very first ministry. And we think a lot of places that we would minister, and there's a lot of us in here, we serve in the local church. But friends, I would just tell you the greatest place that the Lord would desire you to serve is at home. Ladies, serving your husband with honorable, pure, gentle conduct. Husbands, loving and nourishing and providing for your spouse and your family. It is a marriage opportunity If you continue, though, in verse 3, it says, And do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the clothing you wear. He says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. Now, what does he mean there? I think what he means is, is that marriage requires the hard work of heart work. At the end of the day, you might think, well, marriage is about a relationship and to maintain the relationship. Ladies, it oftentimes might come with a little bit of pressure to continue to keep your body or your physical appearance in a particular shape. But what Peter is commissioning these ladies to be about, he says, hey, listen, the goal is not to be on the cover of magazine." The goal is to have a pure, noble heart. The goal is is to live a quiet and gentle life, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, I can can just attest to you that, ladies, I'm married to a woman who desires to get up early in the morning, and and by the time that she gets up in the morning, there's not only um, the things she has to do to care for herself, but also to care for our family well. And that means it requires a lot of time. And and Peter is not saying, hey, lady, you shouldn't get up and you shouldn't care about your appearance. That's not what he's saying. It's not not the opportunity for you to say, oh, I, I don't care about any of those things. It's also not to say, oh, you should be guilty if you do care about those things. What Peter is making the point of is that you shouldn't spend more time on your external beauty than you do on your internal beauty. That at the end of the day, what is precious to God is what's happening on the inward being in your, of your soul. What is precious to God is your spiritual vitality and your health over your physical beauty and nature. I think what Peter is trying to help the ladies in that culture to see is that if you braid your hair and you adorn yourself with fine necklaces and you look like you have it all together, but your character is lacking, he says, you are not a godly woman at all. More than that, you are not a woman to be desired. That a woman to be desired is not merely a physical adorning, but it is a spiritual and internal adorning. It is the hard work of heart work. Which, friends, I will just tell you that the way that we are hardwired in our natural flesh is to look for someone who is physically appealing to our nature. 
And oftentimes we put a large precedent on that. And it's easy for us to do. And we have uh, certain types of, of people that we might be attracted to. And it could revolve around shapes and sizes or hair colors. But at the end of the day, what Peter is simply saying is, hey, don't get caught up in external things. Make sure that what you're looking for is an internal beauty that is blessed by God as they seek to honor God and honor one another which is something that our culture struggles with. And when I think about this type of woman, when I think about the woman that God desires, I can't help but think about Proverbs 31. If you have your Bibles, you can certainly turn there real quickly. If you don't, that's okay. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to highlight a couple of verses that, just, that I recognize and that are just ones that I think are worthy of mention. In Proverbs 31, which is certainly a, a a chapter about the kind of godly woman you would desire to see. In verse 10, it says, An excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. Verse 12, She does him good, meaning her husband, and not harm all the days of her life. This type of woman is not only honorable and has pure conduct, but she's worthy of of a lot because of the blessing she is to her family and her husband. Uh, verse 20 says she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out to her, her hands to the needy. This type of woman is not just a blessing to her, to her spouse or her children, but to others. Like People are blessed by the uniqueness of this woman's character. In verse 21 says she is not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her, ha- uh, her household are clothed in scarlet. Uh, the idea is, is that when winter comes, she's ready. Like she's been tirelessly working and serving. And this kind of woman is not just a, an honorable woman with um, pure conduct, but this is also a woman that's hardworking, that she's diligently serving her family. That's a noble woman. Verse 23 says, Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Her husband's name is made better because of the character and the beauty and the internal worth of this type of of woman. Verse 25 says, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. You, when she opens her mouth, it's not foolishness, it's not folly, it's not slander, it's not gossip, it's not maliciousness, it's not anything other than what honors the Lord. It is wisdom and grace. Grace doesn't merely adorn her externally. Grace is who she is. Verse 26 um, says that kindness is on her tongue. Like when you think about that, that's who she is. She is a gentle, noble, kind, respectful woman. 28 says, Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This is the kind of woman that Peter is talking about. And as you turn back to Peter, It's the type of woman that is produced when you work hard at heart work. It is caring for your soul more than it is caring for your external beauty. And Peter says, hey, that is a good, good thing. It goes on in verse 5 of uh, 1 Peter 3 and says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he goes, in the in the days of old, and he does a throwback here. And he's going to go all the way back to the days of Abraham and Sarah, which we'll see in a second. He goes, to the day of old, he goes, they didn't care about the external beauty or the adorning of the outside appearance as much. But they 
he says in verse 5, but they, they adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And I think it would be really easy for us to say, well, of course they didn't adorn themselves. I mean, Abraham and Sarah didn't have running water. I mean, ladies, could you imagine a world without a curling iron, right? A hair straightener, a mirror. Like, could you imagine that? Like, that's, of course it wasn't important to them because they didn't have the amenities that, that you and I enjoy, right? But that's not the point. The point is not, hey, they didn't care about those things because they didn't have water or showers or curling out. That's not the point. The point is they didn't care about these things because honoring the Lord is not caught up in external measures. Matter of fact, when you are clothed in Christ, the way that God truly desires, you don't have to unclothe yourselves on beaches to get attention. Like in the end of the day, like purity and nobleness, all of that, this whole idea of an honorable lifestyle is because you are clothed in Christ. It is because you were adorned in him. And when he does this throwback, he says, It is as Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And Peter does a throwback to Genesis 18 when Sarah is in the tent and he calls him Lord as they're having a discussion about having a, new, having a child. It's the same passage where Sarah laughs at God and God says to Abraham, Hey, my Lord, why, why is your wife laughing at me? Is that same passage. And Peter does a throwback there. And the reason he does is because he goes, and you are her children. Meaning that if in the old days, the external adorning was not as important as it is in this day, but that internal adorning is important. He goes, make sure that you're her children. Meaning, number three point, is that traits of a godly woman, and I would say even or a man in marriage are learned traits. So when they, you see that phrase there, you are her children, the point is, is that you are to learn, and that's Peter's point, you are to learn from your mother Sarah. Sarah respected and called Abraham Lord. Hey, you two are to respect and care and be noble in all things for your husband. Now, men, I think you're going too far this afternoon if you say, my lady, you are to call me my Lord. <laughs> so you can try that. I guess if you would like them to call you my Lord, then hey, whatever works, okay? I'm not going to try that one at home. Uh, I, there's a lot of other battles that I'm going to pick. That's not one of them. Hey, Kelly, I want you to call me my Lord from now on, right? That's not the point. What is the point? What is the point? If you are her children, ladies, if men, we are Sarah's children, I think the point is, is that we have to learn what godly marriage traits look like. And more than that, ladies in here, particularly if you go to the beauty shop and you have to have hair color, you are to teach and you see this displayed in a fantastic way in Titus chapter 2. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, why do we have to teach or why do we have to learn? And I would say is because in our flesh, we are programmed, we are set in our flesh to not submit or yield ourselves to godly authority. 
That's why Peter's writing this text in the first place. The reason we are to proclaim the excellencies of God in light, the reason we are to live noble lives among the Gentiles, the reason that we are called to to do anything is simply because of our submission to God. But that doesn't come naturally to us, right? Like we, we are hardwired to press up against authority. Like who are you to tell me what I should do? Anybody in here like, yeah, I struggle with authority. I do, right? Like, I mean, the lady in Walmart's got the, you know, the aisle closed off. It's even more ridiculous at Home Depot, right? Like, I just need to get a box of screws. We got to block the whole aisle. Like, everything I want to do is just to move the little deal and walk down, right? Anybody else? You're like, that's me. Amen. Some of you men in here are like, yes, that's the most ridiculous thing. Yes. That's who I like. That's who we are. So to submit in this type of way is a learned thing. Titus two one one through six. Um, really, I'm just going to read one through five. It says, "But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men, you're to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, and love and steadfastness." Verse three. Older women, likewise, you're to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine, but they are to teach. That's a key phrase there. They're to teach what is good, what is good. And so train, verse 4, the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. What does it look like to love your husbands and love your children? I was reminded of a story that I uh, read a handful of weeks ago and as I was working through some marriage stuff, and it was a, a young lady who had just married her husband and they were off on their honeymoon. And about two or three days into it, she calls home with mama And she says, hey, I know I said for better or worse, but worse has happened, and I am ready to come home. And she talks to her mama, and they're in the Bahamas, and, you know, supposed to be enjoying this, but they've already fought, and she's trashing her husband and, you know, all these things. And mama takes about 15 minutes to call. She said, well, I'm going to let you talk to your daddy. So daddy gets on the phone, and they talk, and they're only on the phone for about 60 seconds, and they hop off. So dad comes in to mama. And mama's like, what did you say? I was on the phone with her for the last 15 minutes. She said, well, she kept saying, I want to go home. I want to go home. So he said, I clearly told her, you are home. And then I hung up the phone. <laughs> and I'm like, that's how it should be. You know, you, you, you just married him. You just said for better or worse. And so, yeah, I get it. It's like Ikea. It's going to cost you something. It's going to be confusing. But let me teach you a hard lesson. He's your husband. Don't trash him to your mama. Go love him. Go figure out how to make that work. And, And that right there is, that's a learned thing. Mamas, it's not, it's not giving an ear to your daughter in a way that disrespects the one flesh that has been created in the eyes of man and God. And so when Jesus adds on, and in Matthew 19, he clearly says what man has put to, or what God has put together, let not man separate. We've got to be diligent men and ladies to teach younger men and ladies what it looks like to stay in marriage, though it's hard. To be self-controlled, verse 5. To be pure. To be working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God might not be reviled. There's the key. That the word of God would be a precedent. 
that the word of God would be a reflection. Friends, that's what marriage is to be. But it does beg the question, is there ever a time where a daddy takes a phone call from his little girl and he says, hey, you need to come home for a little while? Is there ever a time when a woman should not submit in the case that is mentioned here in Peter? And listen, I would just tell you that any pastor that's worth a grain of salt has got to address that. Like it's one thing just to say, hey, you ought to submit, submit, submit. But the question is, is there ever cases in the scripture that you're called not to submit? I think of a great classic um, in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue and encourages everybody to bow down. And then you got, you know, you got a handful of buddies that said, hey, we're not going to bow down to your idol. Like that doesn't honor God. And so this is the case that I'm talking about, something that clearly doesn't honor God. And so the question is, is there a time and when is that? And I would say any time that a husband is leading a wife into clear, negligent sin, a woman does not have to submit. And you might ask the question, well, what are those cases? Are there cases? And I would say, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list. This is not an extensive list. And this list is not going to cover every single detail. And so if you, you know, at the end of this, want to send me an email and you want to dissect that a little bit more, hey, feel free. You can send it to cody.king at stonepointchurch.com. <laughs> we'll make sure we handle it. I'm giving you this list simply because these are things that I have experienced and dealt with, and these are things that I would walk my own daughter through if they were happening in her marriage. And so I view it from the lens of a father, not that they're all going to be super crystal clear, but these are things you have to talk about and have to consider when a husband might be trying to lead a wife into sin. So what are they? I'll just give you a handful of them. I would say one of them is impurity. The degrading of bodies. I think about the classic text in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You don't have to turn there. I'm not even going to put it for you. But Paul just asked the question around our bodies. He says, hey, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? And then he goes on and he just says, don't you know that it's from God? And, and then he just says, hey, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. And so when I think about that, an area that ladies, you need to be careful following your husband in were things that don't honor your bodies given as a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what would those be? Not an exhaustive list, but I would say adultery is an area that while we always desire reconciliation in order for reconciliation to happen in this area, there's got to be clear repentance. And so, ladies, if, if you are following a man who clearly, continually is pursuing this means of behavior, it is one in which you should say, hey, I'm not following this anymore. Um, I think another degrading of the body would be bringing pornography into the marriage. Bringing outside sources in for your own pleasure is something that doesn't honor God. It's between a man and a woman as one flesh. It's not outside sources. And so therefore, as a woman, you just politely say to your husband, hey, listen, I don't think this, is, this isn't God's goal for us anymore. This isn't God's desire. And, and listen, if it pricks your conscience, you need to raise your hand. And it's okay to say, hey, I can't follow you here. I'm not going to follow you here. And and I just want you to know that's okay. Um, that goes on to fornication. I, I think 
men oftentimes, if given a little bit of grace in their boundaries, would, would pursue other things. And, and so just, I want to go ahead and touch on it because it's happening in our culture. But fornication, orgies and the like, it's not okay to bring others into the relationship. And so that's just, those are boundaries in which as wives, you should not yield to your husband's leadership. I would say another one would be abuse. We have not read it yet. We'll read it in 1 Peter 3, but it just talks about that ladies are the weaker vessel and that husbands should not give in um, really uh, to, to, to things that would promote them over the weaker vessel. And we'll talk more about that in a second. But when I think about that wives are the weaker vessel, I think about abuse. So... What are things that wives should not follow their husbands in? I would say physical, emotional, verbal, and sexual abuse. Those are things that can be prevalent, but those are not things that honor God. And so those are areas in which a lady, you should raise your hand. And when I say raise your hand, I mean reach out. Because as elders of the local church, our goal is to protect our body. And that oftentimes means vulnerable women who at this point you may say, I can't stand up for myself. And that's why God gave me a body where I'm 6'3 and 235 pounds. Because if if you are taking things that you shouldn't from a man, then listen, don't. Don't yield to that. You don't have to. And so listen, there are men in our church who would love to care for your family in a season. Now, again, reconciliation, always the goal. But it has to always come with genuine repentance. There has to be a life change. That's the key. I would say another area is ladies, it, maybe this type of physical, verbal, sexual abuse has not happened to you. It's happened to your children. Don't yield to that either. And so don't buy into the lie that, hey, my husband treats me right, but he's not treating the children right. Friends, any of that is not from our Lord. It is not proclaiming the excellencies of him who loved us and called us out of darkness. So why in the world would we live behind a life of closed doors in darkness when Christ is calling us to live in the light? And in the light, we can find healing from even these things that are twisted. Bring them to the light. I would say another area is just when you have a lack of sober-mindedness. When I think about sober-mindedness, I think about the calls in the New Testament. Seven times leaders in the local church and men are called to be sober-minded, to be alert. When I think about sober-mindedness, I think not drowsy, not sleepy. You ever been to the doctor and you got a prescription and on the side of it says, do not take while driving. Anybody else with me? There's three of us. That's good. Awesome. Do not take while driving, right? So it's like, hey, don't do this because you're not going to be alert. You are yielding yourself to the potential of becoming drowsy. So when you think about alertness, I think not drowsy, not sleepy, not unable to lead. And so when I think about lack of sober-mindedness, ladies, you don't yield to men who are not sober-minded, not clear-headed. Is that drugs? Alcohol, other substances, are they selling it, bringing it into the home? Don't yield to a lack of sober-minded leadership. 
another area that I would say that you clearly see if you've been reading along with us in Acts chapter 5. A husband's desire to be thought well of as he sold some land and made it look like he, he did a good thing, it cost him his life in Ananias. They go to his wife Sapphira. She lied for him and ultimately knew all about the theft and the way that they were deceiving God, and she too lost her life. So an area too that I don't think you yield to your husband in is, is theft or deceit. And so maybe there's something that's happening in the workplace and you know that there's theft or there's been embezzlement. Like that's not an area, you, you, you raise your hand there. Does that make sense? There are areas in which as believers in Christ, we raise our hands. Now listen, again, the goal always is reconciliation if possible. But friends, reconciliation is not always possible if there's not genuine change in a, in a man or a woman's heart to pursue godliness. And in that case then we take it case by case. Let's move on to verse 6. Kind of weird placement here, but the latter part of 6, is it says, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening, he's adding on to what he said earlier. And he says, and you are her children, and then if you do good and don't fear anything that is frightening. And why does Paul write, or why does Peter write that? Peter writes that in a really weird place. He goes, hey, you're, you're good to obey your mother, Sarah. You're good to follow her if, if you do good and you don't fear anything that is frightening. What in the world would be frightening? Marriage. <laughs> and so I would just tell you, like, trusting God's plan is frightening. Trusting God's plan for marriage is frightening. If you don't have the cases in which we just talked about in your marriage, what you have is just a stubborn, bullheaded wife <laughs> or husband, husband, right? Then what does he say? He goes, you stay and you, you continue to pursue. Yes, it's frightening. And tr trusting God's plan is frightening. What is God's plan? It's two people in the difficulties of marriage pursuing one another as one flesh if possible, and so far as it depends on the Lord, that's the goal. God's design never was intended to be easy. But I will tell you this, God's design in salvation, sending his son to be a sacrifice for sinners was not easy either. And the fact that he maintains his covenant promise, though we don't, is not easy, but he's holy. And that, my friends, is God's call on our life. Frightening, yes. Difficult, yes. The Ikea relationships and confusing, absolutely. Going to cost you a ton, hard to put together, yes. But nonetheless, we are not afraid. And then verse 7 says, And likewise, husbands, you are to live with your wives. It feels like up until this point, there's been a lot of verses around the ladies. But look at verse 7. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Show honor to the women as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And maybe you're a lady in here, and you're like, I do not like them calling me the weaker vessel. I think you can get, you can get the implication of a couple of things here. I think you could say, oh, there's a lot of people who say, well, they're the weaker vessel because Eve gave in to the temptation in Genesis 3. I don't think that's really what Peter means here. When he says weaker vessel, I think he's specifically talking to the natural place of physical weakness. Now listen, there are a handful of phenom women out there that could whip every guy in the room, okay? 
it's not normative. The normative part is that husbands are larger and stronger than women. That's normative. So the point is, you are to live with your wives in an understanding way, and you are not to use your physical strength as a tool in which you would put your wife at risk. I think the other part of that is simply to help us realize that we are both heirs of life, that God didn't give you a physical body stronger than most natural women to be used to your advantage. Because if we are both partakers of the heirs of grace, then he goes, we have equality before God. So what is he saying? I think he's saying is, husbands, the way you lead really, really matters. Which, husbands, if you have a pen, you might write a couple things down. And if you don't have a pen, then just hope there's not one real close to you in the area. That's not going to look good to your wife, okay? What do you think about when you think about leadership matters? And here's the deal. I'm going to run just a few minutes long, but I'm going to spend about five minutes on this area real quickly. And I hope you have one thing in your mind, the image of one thing, and that is a shepherd. Like, that's all I want you to think of as a shepherd. Men, you are to be a shepherd. You don't have to be big to be a shepherd. David was small. He was ruddy. He was not of any great appearance. He was not going to be a a five-star athlete. He didn't look like that. But what he was, was he was a leader and he was a shepherd. And he was willing to fend off anything to protect his sheep. Husbands, that is the picture. It is, it is to be a shepherd. So as a shepherd, you naturally, because you're in Texas, think, oh, I'm a defender. And you already think about the 45 that you have on your hip or in your, it, that's not, let's start with this. How do you clearly, as a shepherd, most articulate your love to your wife? Well, here you see her as an heir of grace, but Ephesians 5 says you nourish and care for your wife as you would your own body. So I think the goal is, is that you would care for your wife physically and spiritually. Which I would just ask the question, hey, how are you leading your wife spiritually? Do you have a plan in place? Is it enough as a shepherd who is caring for your wife only to pray with her at night? Is that the goal? Like, hey, you're going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to say, hey, well done, thy good and faithful man. You prayed consistently. Or is there more? Like, how are you pursuing her heart? How are you caring for her soul? How are you making sure that she is becoming more like the image of Christ? And whose responsibility is that? Now, friends, I pray, I hope and I pray that the responsibility is not mine. And the reason I hope that is because I can't imagine caring for any other women besides my own wife. And I can't imagine that you would want anybody else caring for your bride. So how are you doing in the areas of physically, spiritually, and emotionally caring for your bride? That is your number one goal, guys. You are the shepherd. God has placed your bride in your life for this reason, to care for her and to care for her well. And I pray that you will. I pray that you would take a step back and say, hey, how am I doing in this area? And I would just tell you, if you're not doing well, that's okay for a moment. Simply admit that. 
Simply confess that. Simply go to her and say, hey, I haven't done a great job. Hey, and I'm also not all that intelligent. Like God made me out of dirt. And so, but will you help me come up with a plan in which I could just serve you well? Like I want to love you well. I want to nourish your soul. I want, I want to meet your needs. I want to be a man who honors the Lord and I want to honor you. Will you help me with that? Like, that's okay. Start there. Find a place. But I would say this. It's, it's also working diligently with your hands. 1 Thessalonians 4.11. It's not being a sluggard. Proverbs 21.25 says the desire of the sluggard kills, uh, kills him. His hands refuse labor. Like, one of the things you and I are to do as men are provide for our family. And if that means you got to go and, and get... A job, then go and get a job and work really hard. Listen, I'll tell you, we live in a society right now that, that tells you, hey, if you have enough videos out there and you get a big enough platform that you can sit on this side of the computer and money's going to flow in. And friends, I'll tell you, it has happened for a handful of people. But it is not normative. What is the normative way of gaining proceeds? Hard, laborious work. If, it, if there's a get-rich scheme early in my marriage, I wanted to try to find it. Like, it, didn't it sound awesome to live in comfort and have money flowing in? Like, who in the world doesn't want that? But every time, and I'm telling you, I'll take you to the bank, every time that I've ever sought to gain money from the means of something easy, I've lost my tail. And when I say lost my tail, I'm not just talking I lost a lot of money. When I lose my tail, I have to come back to my wife and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm an idiot. And I keep, my, my greedy heart keeps pursuing things that aren't honorable. And, and ultimately, at the end of the day, I think that it's going to gain us something and I lose everything. So you know what's produced wealth for me? Sweat equity. Hard work. Tireless labor. But listen, that is a noble way of living. And friends, you may not ever have all the things that your buddies have. And you may not have the lifestyle that you see that your friends have on Facebook. Can I tell you that to live a peaceful, quiet, godly life, as Paul encouraged the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, that, my friends, is a noble life and is a godly example and a witness to the world to know there is nothing in the world that I have to have as long as I have peace at home and I'm content with the, the little meager things I have. Hey, praise the Lord. And that's okay. So friends, I would just tell you, that matters. So nourish her, care for her, be hardworking. And then I would just say the last one, hey, men, this is where you're going to like me, okay? Hey, fend off the enemy. Stand at the door of your home and say, hey, I'm going to protect this. And you protect it physically from people who would desire to destruct your home. And you protect it spiritually from the enemy. You just say, hey, we're going to be unmovable and this is going to be who we are. And, and men lead with integrity. Honor the Lord in all things. Submit and yield your authority to him in difficult things because he is with you even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And his rod and his staff, they comfort you. And men, it is okay as the shepherd of your home to have a rod and a staff. A rod brings discipline when needed to your children. 
A rod fins off the enemy, and a staff lovingly pulls back, corrects, admonishes, and restores everyone in your home. Because the ultimate goal of a husband and a father is to not only be conformed to the image of our Lord ourselves, but is also to lead and love like our Lord. And if you're not doing great in that, raise your hand and say, I need help. I need to learn a few things. And that's okay. And I would just encourage you to know that this is a safe place in which you can raise your hand and you can acknowledge that I need help. And there are people, including myself, who would love to come alongside of you so that you and your family are healthy and strong and a picture of the glory of God in the world because we know the world needs it. Why not let it start with you? Why not you be the thing that forks your family tree? You you know, we don't have to live among crazy family trees. Y'all know that? Like at some point you could say, you know what, these weird forks and all this craziness, it's stopping with me. And and we're going to prune this off and we're going to have a straight branch. And so why not ask the question, Lord, why not me? And why not now? Those are two relative questions. And I pray that that's what the Lord will do in your heart. Now, if you leave out of this place and you're just ticked off and you're mad, like, hey, like, I'm, uh, uh, come see me. Because at the end of the day, my goal is not to hurt or harm anyone. It is simply to help you be all that God desires you to be. And if you heard anything other than that, like, I would love for you to know me more deeply. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the word in which is our guide and our life and, Lord, what we live by. Father, I pray for marriages and families in this room. Lord God, would you help them to honor you? Would you help our ministry to be reflected in our marriage? Lord, would you help us to honor our wives and wives honor their husbands? Lord, would you help us to continue to do the hard work of heart work, continually offering ourselves to you. And though our relationships are confusing and they are difficult and they do cost us a lot, I pray, Lord, that we would trust your plan for marriage. That though it's difficult and we are commended to remain single if possible, I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't be frightened and that we wouldn't be scared, but, Lord, that we would stand our post, that we would not become that we would not lack sober-mindedness and that we wouldn't become drowsy. Lord, may we not grow weary in doing good, but Lord, may we honor you in all that we do and may we be a model of good works. May we show integrity and dignity and sound speech and may even the worst of our enemies not be able to use anything against us because of the character in which we live in our homes. In Jesus' name. Amen.